0: Good evening. Sounds of Mars, a new three foot rule for schools, a slave burial ground in the Bronx and the real story behind the death of Fred Hampton as Trader Joe's workers try to unionize. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, March 19th, 2021. NASA's newest Mars rover has sent back the first ever sounds of driving on the red planet. The noises made by Perseverance's six metal wheels and suspension are part of a 16-minute raw audio feed released this week by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. I'd rush my car to the shop if I heard those sounds. Perseverance, the biggest, most advanced rover ever sent to Mars, landed near an ancient river delta on February 18th to search for signs of past life. The rover carries two microphones. In a few days, it will drop off its tag-along helicopter named Ingenuity for an attempt at the first powered flight on another world. And earlier today on a visit to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, President Joe Biden announced he's doubling down after the United States reached 100 million vaccinations several weeks ahead of schedule. He wants 200 million shots by the end of his first 100 days in office. During his visit to the CDC, Biden addressed his meeting years ago with then vice president of China, Xi Jinping, and what he told him about America before they both became presidents of their respective nations.
1: I was with Xi Jinping in China. I spent more time with him, I'm told, than any world leader because he was vice president, I was vice president. He asked me, on the Tibetan Plateau. He asked me, he said to me, can you define America for me? And I said, yeah, in one word, and I mean it, one word, possibilities possibilities. It's you guys believe in possibilities based on science and hard data. And so I just thank you for not only your intellectual skills, but your heart, your heart, your determination. Thank
0: you. Thank you. thank you. And that's President Biden. He's currently delivering remarks at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, after being introduced by Vice President Harris. Both spoke about the shooting dead of eight people, six of them Asian women in the city of Atlanta earlier in the week. Meanwhile, top United States and Chinese officials met again Friday after sparring over sharply different views of each other and the world in their first face to face talks since President Joe Biden took office. United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the Biden administration is united with his allies in pushing back against Chinese authoritarianism, while Chinese Communist Party Foreign Affairs Chief Yang Jiechi accused Washington of hypocrisy on human rights. <laughs>
2: Whether it's the ability to launch cyber attacks or the technologies that could be deployed, the United States is the champion in this regard. Uh, the United States itself does not represent international public opinion,
3: and
2: neither does the Western world. The Western world does not represent the global public opinion. The U.S. does not represent the world. It only represents the government of the United States.
0: And that was the uh, Foreign Affairs Chief Yang Shi speaking through an interpreter in Anchorage, Alaska. The contentious tone of their public comments suggested the private discussions would be even rockier. The meetings were a new test in increasingly troubled relations between the two countries. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said Friday it's relaxing its COVID-19 guidelines for schools. Students can safely sit just three feet apart in the classroom as long as they wear masks, but should be kept the usual six feet away from one another at sporting events, assemblies, lunch, or chorus practice. The revised recommendations represent a turn away from the six-foot standard that has sharply limited how many students some schools can accommodate. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said the revised recommendations are a roadmap to help schools reopen safely.
3: Last
1: week, the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases published a study that looked at COVID-19 in 251 Massachusetts school districts over a four-month period of time. It found that physical distancing of at least three feet between students could safely be adopted in school settings when everyone, students and staff, wore a mask at all times.
0: CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky After the CDC director made her guidance, Mayor Bill de Blasio held his daily news briefing announcing that on Monday the city will give some public school students learning remotely another chance to opt into in-person classes. The new opt-in window will be for pre-K, 3K, elementary, and District 75 special ed students.
4: I think there are more and more parents who want their kids back in school. Uh, they have seen real progress in the fight against COVID, and a lot of time has passed where kids have not been with educators and with their peers. And so I think you're going to see a lot of parents who want to take advantage of this opportunity.
0: Mayor de Blasio, in a late afternoon statement, Principals Union President Mark Cannizzaro said while staff was ready to welcome students, the unions hadn't been warned. Once again, the statement reads, detailed plans should have been shared with principals prior to any citywide announcement. And in more local news, the daughter of late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan admitted she told two Asian-American persons, quote, you're not from here. You're from China. Go back in a dispute over cab fare on First Avenue at 22nd Street. Maura Moynihan apologized, but added she's, quote, devoted most of her life to working with and for Asian people. One of the two persons at the receiving end says he filed a police report adding whatever your past work, it doesn't justify what you say or how you conduct yourself. You say a racial slur and it's inappropriate and unacceptable. And up in Hunts Point in the Bronx, it's where the city's vast wholesale food markets are located. It's a South Bronx neighborhood and has also been derided as an open air brothel for truck drivers and been depicted by Spike Lee as a home to crack smoking fiends. But in fact, it's a poor, struggling, and proud community with an ancient history, one of the few places in America where deeds document landowners reaching back to Native Americans who were coerced into signing away their lands to European colonists. Hunts Point is also the site of a 17th-century graveyard named after a 19th-century poet with a secret, a burial ground for enslaved Africans. If the city parks department has its way, the burial ground will remain a secret, After students at a nearby elementary school discovered the plots, a sign marking the historical significance was erected, allowed to rot away, and then replaced with a sign that omitted the buried slaves. A former history teacher and curriculum chief for the Department of Education is Philip Panaridis. He lives in the Bronx. He says slaveholding was much more widespread in New York than previously taught.
1: 20% of of New York, which was Manhattan in those days, was free or enslaved uh, black people one in every five citizens. The same was true in uh, the estates, the same was true in towns in Westchester. In the Bronx, which was part of Westchester, the West farms, 20%, the the Morrises, the Phillips had a plantation down here. Morris had over 30 slaves.
0: And how is it that we know so little until now? Uh, the slave
1: burial ground? Wishful thinking. It's, it's that we're pumped full of the myth in school that slavery was something that happened down south and bad people did it to them. Rep Butler did it to them. It's not us
0: enslaved African burial grounds that have been discovered in the city. Of course, the most famous is is in lower Manhattan, but there's one up in the Bronx that you and I were uh, involved in researching and that you did a lot of work on. Tell us a little bit about the one in Hunts Point.
1: The headstones are the white folks that lived there who are memorialized with not only there, but in the streets, people like Fox and Leggett and Hunt and, and uh, Tiffany and those people and across the main road at the time, Hunts Point Road, which doesn't exist anymore. We found all this through old maps, which you were helpful in we found that the reason for it being across the road and not next to the masters was that they couldn't, they, the enslaved people, couldn't be buried in consecrated ground so, so there's a picture, one picture, photograph of the Hunts Point Slave Burial Ground, as it was called. It shows the graves in 1910 and falling down wooden markers with initials instead of the stone markers that the white folks across the road had. It's in pretty bad shape. A street came through around 1911 or 12, Drake Park South, and they graded it all up. So in the process of doing that, either the street department or the parks department, which owned it, put fill on the cemetery. The markers weren't moved. There was no sign to memorialize them. And I heard about it and started asking and started doing research and going to the archives and getting wills and went up to White Plains, the county seat. And that was very helpful because it had census records with the number of enslaved people. And much to our surprise, because I'm a history teacher and had worked down at Tweed in history for the city. Uh, Much to our surprise, everything I learned about slavery in New York that uh, differed from the South, and there was just one or two enslaved people in a family, and that uh, they would sleep in the basement or the attic or something like that. Uh, That wasn't the case up here. There were little mini plantations. We found multiple, according to the census records, of course, no names, but just the number of enslaved people and the number of Indians they counted we found the estates had 13 and 11 and 12 and 8 and so there was a significant population and they're the ones that made the estates wealthy twice a week there was boats going down the east river to the market in manhattan bringing produce and bacon and wheat and the cows up here the city
0: really hasn't gone out of its way to really make a a point of it, I mean, there was as we were talking about earlier, there was a sign it was sort of faded out sign it was replaced with a sign that didn 't even have the right information on it. What does that tell you i 'm disappointed by
1: that paul, and i I think it's uh, unfortunately it 's consistent with the way that our work has been has been treated by the parks department from the very beginning it 's been a Bronx thing, and the people in the neighborhood down there don't vote as much or give money as much which is why you have all the environmental racism and what is it 13 incinerators in hunts point because they can get away with it there could have been a sign and there should have been a sign and and they should have made the sign legible and they shouldn't have changed they should not have taken anything out of it we still haven't found any descendants you know if there was a descendant community where you could say oh this my great great grandmother was one of the people here they would actually have a say in what would happen there and whether their bodies would be disinterred
0: a former history teacher and curriculum chief for the department of education is philip paneridis i was also a teacher at ps48 The group of students at PS48 is also a school that's also named for Joseph Drake, the 19th century poet who's buried in the White Cemetery, were led by us and teacher Justin Zarka to identify several dozen people who may be buried near Drake Park by examining archived wills and newspapers. The 1800 census listed 44 enslaved Africans living in the Hunts Point area and burials continued at the site near Drake Park until the 1840s. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city's daily COVID-19 indicators and the newest indicator, vaccinations.
4: 3,139,592 vaccinations from day one. And that pace is picking up and we're hearing good news about more vaccine coming. We can really make this number go higher and higher every day with additional supply, so that is looking real good. Let me go over today's indicators. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for COVID-19. Today's report, 215 patients. Confirmed positivity level, 33.92%, hospitalization rate, 3.61 per 100,000. And now, new, number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 2,115 cases. Number three percentage of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Today's report on a seven day rolling average, 6.6 percent.
0: Mayor de Blasio, a popular grocery chain in New York and around the country released a coronavirus update of its own last week outlining how it's caring for its workers and customers. The company says it's following CDC guidelines and state and local health advisories, but it's facing accusations of retaliation against employees who speak out about working conditions. It's a popular place. A lot of us go shop there almost every day. Trader Joe's. Mary Stephan Hagen reports.
2: On a typical Saturday, the line outside my local Trader Joe's in Brooklyn wraps fully around the building onto the nearby plaza. Last time I was here, I waited over 40 minutes just to get inside. It's a sign of the store's continued popularity and loyal customer base throughout the pandemic. But in the past couple of weeks, two Trader Joe's employees have gone public with stories of retaliation against them. Ben Bonama worked in a store here on the Upper West Side. A couple of weeks ago, he wrote to Trader Joe's CEO. He asked the company to implement new safety measures around ventilation in his store, a COVID-19 precaution. After he sent the letter, managers fired him. In his termination notice, they wrote that his suggestions weren't aligned with company values and they weren't comfortable with him working there anymore. Ben posted both letters on Twitter. They went viral. Then he lawyered up. Trader Joe's ended up giving him his job back a few days later. Ben and his lawyer didn't respond to requests for comment. Trader Joe's released a statement afterwards that said he was fired for being disrespectful towards customers, but they also haven't commented on his rehiring. Over on the West Coast, another Trader Joe's employee has her own story of retaliation. I was a Trader Joe's employee who
1: was fired for speaking up in support of Black Lives Matter and Black co-workers and Black
2: customers. This is Sydney Satry. She worked for Trader Joe's in Portland, Oregon last year. Now she's suing the company. She alleges they fired her for saying the company was discriminating against Black workers and others who support the Black Lives Matter movement. She says she and other coworkers got negative performance reviews after speaking up about this.
1: So I felt like because of management's suppression of support for Black employees and Black customers and then Black Lives Matter as a whole, that they were creating a really hostile work environment for Black employees, but also for Black customers who shopped there.
2: At a store meeting with a regional manager, she gave them a letter about her concerns. She believed they were singling out expressions of support for Black Lives Matter as taboo. A week later, she was fired. Determination notice from her managers says it's because of this letter and what she said in it. It said they disagreed with her statements and that she clearly didn't support the company. Trader Joe's didn't respond to requests for comment on this. But Sydney and her lawyer say that what Sydney did was protected activity. That's the legal term for things employees can do in the workplace that it would be illegal to fire an employee for. Things like reporting discrimination or unsafe working conditions. Sydney claims that by writing this letter, she was reporting discrimination, which is illegal. So she says that Trader Joe's broke the law by firing her over the letter. But a number of other Trader Joe's employees who were fired during the pandemic are left wondering if it's because they brought up workplace safety concerns. They say that after they did, their managers cut their hours or otherwise treated them differently. Some were fired. Managers cited scheduling conflicts or lateness or customer complaints. Joshua Dade worked for Trader Joe's in Washington, D.C. He says he felt comfortable bringing concerns about COVID to his managers because they emphasized an open-door policy.
4: I started speaking up more,
0: then my schedule started to change, and then eventually my hours started to decrease.
2: Joshua was fired in December after he took a week off. When he returned, his managers told him he'd never received the time off. Joshua says he had confirmed his time off with other managers, or mates, as Trader Joe's calls them.
0: By the time I had left in December, my manager had told me to my face one day, I don't want you talking about COVID anymore. Don't bring it up in the meeting. Don't bring it up to the managers. And, and I quote, this is a direct quote, do not waste the mate's time with COVID anymore.
2: Alyssa worked at a store in Atlanta. Alyssa said she spoke to her managers a number of times about the store being too crowded.
1: As soon as you were one of those people that was complaining, you, you were on the chopping block.
2: After 10 years with the company, she was fired in December. Managers cited a complaint from a customer as a reason. Al Gordon O'Connell is an employment lawyer. He says in cases like these, employees would have to show that the official reasons they were fired weren't actually why they were fired. Yes, bringing up safety concerns in the workplace is legally protected, but that's just the first step.
3: So take the example of someone who showed up five minutes late to work who was also happened to be complaining about uh, COVID issues in the workplace. The questions that I would ask would be, were any of your colleagues also five minutes late to work? Did they also get fired? How have they treated similarly situated employees who did not complain and that's what we would try to do to sort that out.
2: So retaliation is often very difficult to prove, but Sydney's lawyer, Maria Witt, believes that in Sydney's case, it's crystal clear.
3: This case is striking to me because
0: Trader Jones doesn't leave anything to the imagination. They put it in writing in her termination letter that she was fired for expressing her opposition to her regional manager.
2: Trader Joe's certainly isn't the only employer to face questions like this during the pandemic. The law firm Barnes & Thornburg LLP maintains an online tracker for COVID-related workplace lawsuits. It shows that workers in restaurants, factories, healthcare facilities, and schools are among those who filed suits for retaliation during the pandemic. Nearly every current and former Trader Joe's employee I spoke with said they loved working for the company. That's why they brought up their concerns. They just wanted to see the place they love do better. Mary Steffenhagen, WBAI News, New York.
0: Thanks, Mary. And finally, the film Judas and the Black Messiah purports to tell the story of a young Chicago Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, who was murdered in a Chicago police raid of his home on December 4th, 1969. He was barely 21 years old. It turned out the Panther, who was Hampton's security chief, was an FBI paid informant named William O'Neill. Investigators Aaron Leonard and Connor Gallagher have recently received thousands of pages of FBI files that show not only was O'Neill profusely thanked for his work by the FBI, his FBI agent handler got a $200 award for a job well done. Aaron Leonard.
3: The Chicago police carried the operation out that killed Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, but they couldn't have done it as efficiently without the aid of the FBI and this key informant, William O'Neill. So that was new information. And then just two weeks ago, I got another 490 pages on Roy Mitchell, and this is going to be the topic of uh, our next article in Jacobin, uh, which looks into the overall counterintelligence operation leveled against the Black Panthers in Chicago. Um, there are quite as stunning revelations in this second batch of documents but there are some very provocative entries, including a commendation letter that is routed to Mitchell's file for the great work the Chicago FBI did in aiding in the apprehension of Angela Davis uh, in October 1970. As near as I know, this is Brand new. The lawyers are Jeff Haas and Flint Taylor.
0: Is there any attempt at all to say there was any actual police work here going on? I mean, was there any. What was the alleged crime that
3: led them to bust into somebody's house in the middle of the night? The Chicago police wanted to exact revenge for the killing of two of their own in the middle of November. Two associates of the Black Panthers had a shootout with Chicago police, and the police in turn wanted the black panthers to pay a price and it seemed like killing fred hampton was the price they wanted to pay the fbi was instrumental in assisting this they celebrated his killing that's why they were paying out the money receiving this file kind of led connor and i to re-examine the whole operation against the chicago black panther party and it's really quite shocking And I don't think enough attention has been given to, you know, not only the killing of Fred Hampton, but this informant, William O'Neill. First, he joins the Panthers on the ground floor. He rises to chief of security. He acts as Fred Hampton's bodyguard. He rose to chief of staff for the Illinois Black Panther Party. Even after Fred Hampton is dead, the FBI is leveling stuff against the Chicago Panthers, and they're using this character william o'neill to do it who seems to be very effective o'neill wants to be chief of staff he wants to get out of the security business because there's all this finger pointing about informants and he wants to act above that so we've learned that hampton is killed in december 69 Uh, the fbi continues to launch various counterintelligence operations against the chapter to create problems for them between the black panthers and the nation of islam they have schemes to uh, insert provocative material into their paper intercepting it at the chicago airport uh, there's a couple schemes to break coalitions or coalitions in progress between the black peace stone nation and the vice lords this is beyond what had already happened in 69 so there's a whole wealth or you know dearth of things going on, which people today can really learn quite a bit from, because it seems like what the FBI is doing more than anything is to try and break these coalitions and attempts at unity by these various radical, revolutionary, progressive, or even just more street-level organizations that are struggling to survive, as it were.
0: It was the alliance of workers and students that had to be destroyed.
3: This film, Judas and the Black Messiah, for all its strength, It should not be read as history. This whole notion of stopping the rise of a black messiah was one of five points in the FBI's overall counterintelligence program aimed at black nationalist groups. Fred Hampton was arising. They hadn't had that kind of attention on him at the point he was killed. It may well have developed. Connor and I were only able to find one counterintelligence operation aimed at Hampton directly to try to discredit him because he was being groomed, if you will, to move to Oakland to join the national leadership. And the FBI was trying to sabotage that. The whole Black Messiah stuff, it's a provocative notion, but the FBI had a whole set of goals, and that was just one of them.
0: Investigator Aaron Leonard, his co-author is Connor Gallagher. Their article, Newly Obtained FBI Files Shed New Light on the Murder of Fred Hampton, is available at jacobinmag.com. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 19th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Dirienzo. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.